0: Well, Father, thank you so much for breaking through the bleak, cold blast of our winter's sin and pursuing us with the warmth and the love of your great Son, the Lord Jesus, your great generosity. Uh, Father, we admit that we, we grasp to understand the significance of our own salvation Father, the reality of our need is clear to us and thank you for opening our eyes to the fact that there is a great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Father, as we review once again this most familiar of stories, would you please use it to refresh us and to renew us and to challenge us. Thank you, Father, for your great love, ever so beautifully displayed In a manger. We commit ourselves to your word now. Use it, I pray, to touch our hearts, to clear our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here it is one of my all time most special Christmas presents. 45 years ago, 1967. I was seven years old and my dad worked in the garage and kept us out and my older brother Philip and I received these plywood toolboxes for Christmas. You know, it's not so much that it's as cool as some plastic box with drawers from Lowe's or something, but it is practical, but isn't it that it's a personal gift from my dad and, and now it's a sentimental gift and it's my old drill box now. And I don't even think about it very often, but when I stop and think, say, what would be, say, the top three or four or five gifts that I've ever gotten or that mean the most to me? My mind goes to the year I got my toolbox, and it had real tools in it. How about you? Can you remember a special gift? If you were to say, my all-time favorite gift at Christmas time is, what would you say? Now, I don't want to minimize some of the special gifts that we gift with that one. And I did receive my Hickory Farms gift this year already. It was on my desk. And I'm, you know, some of you know that I'm a little bit down on Santa. But I'm starting to soften a little bit. Um, he's been pretty good with the peanut M&Ms and the Hickory Farms this year. This one, uh, the note this year that came with it on my desk was um, handwritten inside the card. I talked to Rudolph to pull the sleigh faster to get this gift to my favorite pastor. Over the years, I know you'd enjoy getting this more than a new Christmas toy, signed S. You know, I'm not sure um, that that's totally true. If it says DeWalt on it, I probably would like it a little bit more, maybe. I'm not sure, but we have fun at Christmas with our gifts, don't we? And we all in our homes have our gift exchange traditions and and then you have a favorite gift. I invite you this morning to turn to Luke's Gospel in chapter 2. And we're going back to the, to the heart of the familiar Christmas story. And what I want to do this morning is to challenge us to recognize that, you know, it's not really even a, a sentimental gift. It's not a fun gift from Santa. It's not maybe that big gift that you want that is yellow and black um, you know, or has Remington on the outside of it or whatever. But for believers in the Lord Christ, the gifting at Christmas and the traditions really often end up being somewhat of a distraction if you stop and think about it. And our goal this morning is to revisit the Christmas story and to recognize that the most amazing and special gift we could ever get was given to us by our heavenly father in a manger many years ago and for believers in the Lord Christ there is just nothing that compares to the gift of Jesus we don't always think about it every day and we don't but when we stop and think what really is the most special thing about Christmas boy we have to go right to the manger don't we Let's think about why a little bit. Let's uh, read the story. We'll begin in Luke's Gospel in chapter 2. And uh, I was reminding us a week or two ago that the Gospel accounts are a little bit sketchy on the birth of Jesus. We have Joseph's story in Matthew, Mary's story in Luke. And Luke is the only one of the four Gospels that really gives us any detailed account of the actual birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... All four give significant detail about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so by weight of material, one of the things that we learn is that yes, the birth of our Lord and his entry into his earthly ministry and his incarnation is so important and it teaches us many lessons about God's love for us, but it's heading somewhere. The birth of Christ is the entry point to meet and satisfy the needs of a lost and sinful people loved by their Heavenly Father that is finally satisfied in His great work at the cross and then sealed by His great resurrection three days later, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that He was, Jesus, was declared with power to be the Son of God through the Holy Spirit when He raised Him from the dead. And that's why we don't meet in Muhammad's name this morning. That's why we don't meet in Sun Young Moon's name this morning. We don't meet in the name of any other prophet or any other religious leader. We meet in the name of the resurrected Christ who entered this earth as a baby in Bethlehem according to the Scriptures. Just the way God said He was going to do it. Well, here's how it happened. It's Luke's Gospel in chapter 2. And uh, let's just uh, pick up on the story here. It was in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Here are these Pagan leaders, secular pagan governors, had no idea that they were instruments in the hand of a sovereign God at the appointed time bringing Mary and Joseph right to the town, right to the spot that the prophets of old said the Messiah would be born, all working together, woven together By God's sovereignty. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And so verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And we've talked about that, that great calling on Mary's life to be that special mother of our Lord Jesus. And then Joseph's great adjustments and changes as God redirected his plan for his life. And so just as Joseph was instructed, he's taking care of Mary. And while they were there, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I want you to notice number one this morning that this great story is a very personal story. Did you catch that? Unto who? Unto you is born this day in the city of David. He says later in verse 11, for unto you, that's where the angel said, I bring you good news, and then unto you is born in the city of David. It's a personal story. It's individualized. All of us need Jesus as individuals. I want you to notice too what we see here where the, when the angels interrupt the darkness of night with the shepherds and that familiar phrase of fear not, for behold I bring you good news of great joy. Number two, not only is it a personal story, but it's a very emotional story. Good news of great joy. We're supposed to be happy today, people. We're supposed to be filled with rejoicing. Believers in the Lord Christ have received great news from their Heavenly Father. We're not forgotten. I'm sending you a very special gift. And this is great news. It's great news. It's an emotional story. Notice too, though, it goes beyond the personal. And he says, he says, fear not, verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It is thirdly, a universal story. It is universal. It's for everyone everywhere. I was reminded of this this week when I had the great joy of speaking to my beloved brothers in Malawi, Love Capesi and Yohani Kapesi, the professor, speaking individually with both of them by phone for a few minutes, giving Christmas greetings, assuring that they are well. They extended their greetings to the body of Christ here. And they are celebrating Christmas in the southern hemisphere, in southeast Africa, The churches are gathering in Jesus' name to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's universal. It's for all people everywhere. There's no culture, no people group, no continent, no country, no community that doesn't equally need Jesus. It's personal, it's emotional, but it is universal, let me tell you. By the way, Love and Johanny have been working hard. They've been doing lots of outreaches, even building on some of the trips that I was uh, fortunate to be a part of last spring. And they told me that with all their churches, um, close to 500 churches and their pastors, their evangelists, and their outreach efforts, they have um, logged over 7,000 souls led to Christ in their meetings in Malawi this year. Listen, when you don't have anything, you can look to Jesus and He means something to you. Maybe when Americans get a little poorer, Jesus might mean a little more. I hope we don't have to, and I want to continue to be a blessing with our resources to those around the world. Jesus himself reminded us, didn't he? What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? The Africans might not have shoes on their feet or a shirt on their back or only one little handful of cornmeal mush today to eat, but they've got Jesus and they've got a heavenly city and it's spreading and the gospel is going in waves across the country. And in America, Jesus is a curse word. It's interesting, isn't it? Perspective. It's a universal story. I want you also to see it's an unusual story. We know that. He says, For unto you is born this day, verse 11, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. What an interesting and unusual story. Precious Mary coming in, guided by her, Husband, Joseph, caring for her, called by the leadership of the day to have to return to the home city. And there she is. And then this phenomenon where the city is packed and all of the normal places where they would find residence or overnight lodging are unavailable. They find themselves in this area for animals. We don't know if it's some kind of cave or some kind of a shed or underneath a house where the animals were kept. And there, Joseph takes his dear Mary and no doubt finds a clean spot as he could and spreads the straw, puts down some kind of garments or blankets. And there she is, and there baby Jesus is born. And he wraps him in swaddling clothes, and he looks around, and Mary needs to rest, and he needs to free up his hands, and we don't know if there were midwives present or helpers, It's likely there must have been someone to help Joseph. They wrapped the baby and they freshened the spot where the animals eat at this manger and they wrapped the baby and put him there. Jesus, born in a barn. That wasn't a compliment when I was a kid. I had two older sisters and an older brother who took great delight in, in, in hassling me in my life and regularly they would, with a snarl, ask me when I came running in with mud on my feet or leaving the door open, what's wrong with you? Were you born in a barn? I wasn't clever enough or theological enough back then to turn and say yes, just like Jesus. (laughs) Born in a barn. Interesting picture, isn't it? I think, no doubt, it's partly a picture of his humility. Think about it. There's not a... A bum under a bridge anywhere who's ruined his life with alcohol or bad decisions or sin caving in on his life who can say, Jesus is too good for me. So what do you mean? My Jesus who was born in a barn? Started at the bottom, didn't he? He can relate to all of humanity, but what an unusual story it is. But I want to key in on a word here for the remainder of our message and number five, I want you to see what an essential message it is. What an essential. Look what he says. He said, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. What's the next word? A savior who is Christ the Lord. A savior. Evidently, somebody needed saving. Evidently, somebody needed rescued. And God, our father, saw the need and he addresses the need out of his great love and his kindness. And he said, here's your gift. Here's your gift. You can get excited about a DeWalt drill or, or a, a new best Pro gift card or a plywood toolbox, but I'm telling you, here's your gift that you really need. It's Jesus, and He's your Savior. This is the gift that you really need, and you better pay attention to it. It's interesting that when the angel gave the message and detail of instruction to Joseph in Matthew's account in chapter 1, do you remember what he called Jesus then? He said in Matthew 121, he's the angel telling Joseph in his dream what was going to unfold, he said, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jehovah saves Joshua. For he will save his people from their sins. And there's the problem. Will you say Romans 3.23 with me? You know it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's our big problem, isn't it? Our big problem is is that through the ages, as God has interacted with mankind and the story of His pursuit of men and His redemptive plan unfolds, God took time to prove to man that there was nothing He could do On his own to save himself. It's partly why the law of Moses was given. It was to show us how incomplete we really are. The prophets gave the message... God tried to lead his own people, and they turn away. He tried to lead them on an 11-day journey, and he said, I'll put a big cloud up in the daytime, and I'll put a big cloud of fire at night. You just follow me. It'll take 11 days, and I'll take you into the promised land. And they couldn't do it. It took them 40 years wandering in a circle. Because of what? Because of their disobedience. I mean, one time back there, a long time ago, you know the story well, Genesis 6. He even flooded the whole world. It got so bad. Over and over and over, mankind has proven to himself that there's nothing he can or will do on his own to reach God and that he falls short of the glory of God because of his sinfulness. Well, what I'd like to do for the remainder of our message is I would like to take the name Jesus and I'd like to turn it into an acrostic and I'd like to give you five reasons why Jesus is the greatest Christmas gift you could ever get. And some of you who are bored with Jesus, I hope that you'll kind of renew your mind a little bit today. And that you'll recognize, oh, you're born again, you want Jesus. You're, it's not that you don't want him, but you've become a little bit distracted by the world or um, you know the other agendas. And so maybe, my Christian brothers and sisters, it's a time for us to just renew our heart and our mind for the reality of the preciousness of the gift of Jesus. But maybe you don't know Jesus, you've never received him as a personal gift from God. And become a child of God yourself, and become a follower of Christ, and maybe today's the day. And the reason that Jesus is such a great gift is J is because He justifies. This is in Romans chapter five, and what I want to do now is I just want to show you how and why He is such an amazing Jesus and such an amazing gift. Romans chapter five is where we begin. And I want you to see that, that the manger in Bethlehem where the, the baby Jesus lies is the entry point and ultimately he comes to go to the cross. It's all part of the same package deal that by coming to earth as the perfect man and yet fully God, He alone is qualified to be the one who can go to the cross and be our substitute and gift us with the forgiveness of sin and eternal life in Christ and newness of life in Christ. The first of those truths, J stands for justifies. And we've talked about this word a good bit. It's a, such a great concept. It is spoken about exhaustively in Scripture over and over. It's much of the point of the New Testament. It is a great study. We're just going to hit a high point or two. And Romans 5 is one of those high points where the Apostle Paul teaching about our salvation, having spent three and a half to four chapters proving to us that we all sit in the chair of condemnation and that all have indeed sinned and that all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death and that God, the perfect judge, a holy God, can only judge sin and sinners. He then shows that this forgiveness of sin and the right relationship with God can only happen through the shed blood of Christ, through which we have the forgiveness of sin, and through whom we have a substitute who took our place on the cross, taking our sin upon himself and giving us his righteousness so that he can satisfy the demands of a holy God. Paul is teaching, and we're jumping right into the middle of that in chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, since we have been, and here's our big church word, justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom? through our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem in a manger. And it's a better gift than a plywood box, I'm telling you. We have what with God? We have peace with God when we have been, what's the word? Justified. Justified. That word is used over and over. For example, let your eyes go up to verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been, there it is again, justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We are saved. Remember, that's the word. We need a what? What came to us? The angels announced a Savior. I'm giving you a Savior and here it is. I'm going to save you from what? There it is. From the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God, by Him, Christ, the baby in a manger, the free gift, from the wrath of God. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." We're going to talk about the word reconciliation, so take your bulletin and put it right in the Bible, in your Bible there and hold that page. But I want you to focus on the word justification for just a minute longer. What does the word mean? He says, through the blood of Christ, we've been justified. And through that justification, Romans 5.1 says, by faith, believing it to be true by faith, it's counted as righteousness for us, this work of God through Christ, whereby He was born, grew up, went to the cross, carried our sin to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, was buried and rose again. And by us putting our faith in that, it's counted as righteousness for us, and we then have, verse 1 of Romans 5, peace with God and are justified. Here's what justified means. Listen closely. Justified Is the, justification is the gracious act of God in declaring righteous the sinner who believes on Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Justification is the gracious act of God in declaring righteous the sinner who believes on Jesus Christ. Here's how this works. This, you have to understand that this is a point in time. This is a point in time, okay? It only happens one time. And it's the moment that you look to the cross and you recognize your sinfulness and you acknowledge the fact that there was nothing you could do to take care of your sinfulness and by faith you entered into this salvation and God in His role as a judge who has to, out of, out of a commitment to His own nature, has to judge sin and out of His own holiness cannot look at sin has declared us to be judged or damned for our sinfulness, and there's nothing we can do on our own, the moment you look to God through Christ and His shed blood for the forgiveness of your sin, God in His role as a judge puts the gavel down and declares you to be righteous once and for all. It's a judicial decision by a holy God to declare the fact that you are no longer a sinner and in fact that all of your sin in the past and that all of your sin in the present and that all of your sin in the future, He will remember it never again. It's gone. It's gone. I really like that. But I want to tell you something. It's even more than that. It's not that He just declares the fact that your sin is gone. He takes off the official record once and for all that you ever were a sinner. You have now been justified. And so let's pick some snake out of our audience here, Jim (laughs) Zabalski. And you're sitting and you're thinking, man, I have done some really dumb things and I was a sinner and I've hurt people and I've made bad decisions and I've just done dumb stuff. And you think about that and God has no record of it. Amen? One day, Jim Savolsky admitted his sinfulness before a holy God, and he recognized that Jesus Christ alone carried his sin to the cross. And when by faith he accepted that to be true for him, and it was counted to him for righteousness, at that point, all of his sin in that act of faith that God transacts an action where His sin goes on Christ back at the cross and the righteousness of Christ comes on Him and and God's gavel comes down and He's declared righteous. Past, present, future sin. You're declared righteous. You got the stamp and there's no record in heaven anywhere that you were ever a sinner. Praise God. Praise God. I think some of us should go Actually, I think all of us should go. Because even if you think you grew up squeaky clean, positionally before a holy God, your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Okay? Well, it's interesting, Uh, that's the great doctrine of justification and there's more that could be said. I want to emphasize once again that this is not a process of your salvation, but it's a point in time and it's a judicial declaration that God makes on your behalf when you enter into salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You have been declared righteous. Bam! That's it. You, I mean E comes next. And we must move along, is Galatians 4. And the next word is emancipates. You want to know why Jesus, the baby in a manger, is the greatest gift that ever comes, that ever came? It's because number one, he justifies. And number two, he emancipates. There's a lot that could be said on all the doctrines of our salvation. Let's turn to, to Galatians chapter 4. And we'll not spend quite as much time on it. I don't feel quite as bad um, getting caught up on justification a little bit. I find in my, um, in my commentaries and in my. Theological books, um, here's a new word for some of you, that when we discuss the doctrines of our salvation, it's the word soteriology. Do you know that word? Soteriology. It's the doctrines of our salvation. And whenever you read big books with small print, uh, doctrinal studies and commentaries about our salvation or soteriology, you'll find that they kind of do the same thing I just did. They get caught up, especially on this doctrine of justification Of all the facets of our salvation, and there are so many, that the Bible teaches us, it seems that justification kind of goes to the top of the list. It's just one that is so good for us to think about. But you're going to like this one. It's Emancipates. It's Galatians chapter 4. It's verses 1 through 7, and look what it says. Uh, You need to know that the Apostle Paul is also uh, using an illustration now for the fact that When we don't know Christ as our Savior, we're in bondage under the law of sin, and we're condemned by the law of Moses, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And he's using an illustration of a slave. It's as though we were slaves to sin. Some of you know what it is to be a slave to a particular sin. All of us have been slaves to sin in general in the past. And here's the illustration that he's using. I mean that the heir, he's we're jumping in the middle of his argument. As long as he is a child, is no different than from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He's also equating the idea here that it's as though there's a plantation owner and he's got an, a child and the Greek word for child here is one that's too young to make his own decisions, even an infant. And even though that child might technically be the owner of the whole plantation by rights of sonship, at this point in his life, he's under guardians, verse 2, and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's a way of saying that we're stuck in our sin and that we do things that are contrary to the will of God. Verse 4, here it is. Here's the manger story. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, that's Bethlehem, right? That's Mary, that's the baby in a manger, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive, look at this, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's Paul's logic in short. He said, by rights we were slaves. Even if we were born into the household, it's as though we're a slave, or equal to a slave. But he comes along, and he emancipates us through Christ. This baby, born in Bethlehem, brings salvation... And through our salvation in Christ, not only does he release us, those of us who are in the bondage of slavery of sin, and that's all people, you're released from your sinfulness, he not only releases you or emancipates you, but then he takes you into the house and he adopts you and you are now an equal heir with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 actually calls, calls Christ our older brother. Did you know that? And we're not spouting Mormonism here. The idea is right here embedded in this passage. It's the idea that when we were freed from the bondage of sin through the work of Christ on the cross, He emancipated us from our slavery of sin and freed us like Abraham Lincoln's emancipation proclamation that as of January 1st, 1863, there from thenceforth on, all people everywhere in all states would be free people. You're set free, but it's more than that. It's as though you've been living out in the slave shacks, working in the field, in the bondage of sin, with a chain and ball on your ankle. Not only are you freed from all that, but he takes it even another step, and he brings you into the house, and he adopts you, and he makes you an heir, an equal heir, and that's how we are, in a sense, the younger brothers and sisters of Jesus. Everything that Jesus had by rights of his position as the oldest brother, you might say, and all of the inheritance that would be Christ is now all so equally ours and we are part of the same inheritance I really like that too Janet and I had a great privilege just this past Monday afternoon to sit in the Charlestown courthouse and, the, and to be witnesses to an adoption for a family in our church I had some of this stuff rolling in my mind as I was sitting there watching and there was this family with three children, Mark and Joby Mitchell, their boys All the boys, all the sons, fully heirs. When Papa Mark dies, his inheritance will go to the boys. And there in her mommy's arms was little Tana on her adoption day, sound asleep, had no idea anything was going on, had no idea that everything about her had just changed and that she now had a whole brand new position. She had a whole brand new name. She had a whole brand new inheritance. She didn't do anything to make it happen. The father and mother loved her and brought her into her home and the judge declared it to be true. I thought, what a beautiful picture of what God does for us. He justifies us. He emancipates us. He adopts us. S stands for substitutes. Let's quickly move to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This gift that is so amazing is amazing because it's a gift that justifies. It's a gift that emancipates. But I want you to see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, that He's the gift that substitutes Himself for us. We've already referenced this in in essence in our teaching, and we'll not camp on it, and let's finish up here. First Timothy chapter 2, look at verses 5 and 6. This is a great verse. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And with that one verse, the Apostle Paul basically destroys the underpinnings of almost every religion in the world. There's only one God, and there's only one mediator between God and men, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. That's why He came to earth. That's why He's in the manger. But look at the next verse. You should underline this verse in your Bible. Who gave Himself as a ransom, there it is, for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, at just the right time. God did this according to His sovereign plan. And what did He do? He became the ransom for us. Here's how it works. We were hostages To sin, right? In sin. We're stuck. We can't get out. It's as though we're being held with a gun to our head. And Jesus comes and He says, Listen, I'm not going to pay money to the guy to release you. You can't pay money to get released. But I will go and be your substitute. And that's what He did. He goes to the cross and He dies for us in our place. This is where that great great verse... And let's turn there now. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Because it's our next point as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Notice what He says. He says, for our sake He made Him, Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus goes to the cross, He had no sin, knew no sin, our sin goes on Him, and He pays the ransom He substitutes in. You think you got a cool gift that's yellow and black and can drill through a drywall? I mean, a DeWalt drill's cool, a Browning deer rifle's cool, but I'm telling you something. What you really needed it was a substitute, and God, out of his love and his kindness, sent you the greatest gift you could ever get, and that is somebody who could substitute in when you were on death row. When you were condemned, and you sat in the chair of death, and there was nothing you could do, and you're stuck in your sin. This gift justifies, and this gift, gift emancipates, and this gift goes to the cross for you. He substitutes in, and he pays the price that was owed so that you could be released from captivity based upon the demands of the captor. He pays the price and he ransoms, and he does it by giving of his own body for you. J-E-S-U. He unites. This is another great concept. This word is reconciliation, really. Remember I told you to mark Romans chapter 5 verse 10. I wonder if you did. Go back there, would you please? Romans 5 and look at verses 6 through 10 very quickly. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 10. Apostle Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We're in Romans 5 verse 6. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. You know, a buddy in a foxhole will for his buddies grab a hand grenade and curl up on it and give his life to save his buddies. But that's saving his buddies. Once in a while, people will do that for good people and to help people live. But, verse 8 is the contrast, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't good people. He didn't do it as a favor because of our goodness. He did it out of His love for us, even in our lostness, since therefore we have now been, here's that word we looked at earlier, justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while, here's the key word, if while we were enemies, we were then reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Here's what reconciled means. It means to unite. There were two parties at war. We moved away from God, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden and the rejection of obedience and the the willful sinfulness... And Adam's sin passed upon us. As in Adam, all die. The Apostle Paul built that case strongly throughout the early chapters of the book of Romans showing us that even if it were us, we would do the same thing. And this death penalty is passed upon all men. And the Bible calls us, as it does right here in verse 10, that we in our sinful state are enemies against the holy God. We talked last week about how people just can't stand Jesus. And there's something about it. And this is part of what our proof was last week, that we are at enmity with God and we are enemies of God in our sinful state. But through the shed blood of Christ and by entering into our salvation and faith in Christ, that spiritually broken relationship is turned around and two parties that were once at war, two parties that were heading opposite directions have now turned to face each other, are coming back together and they have been reconciled, they have been united. That's what you get when you get Jesus you have the opportunity to be united with God. You who were once a great enemy of God. He justifies. He emancipates. He substitutes. He unites. There's one more, and I really like this one too. Ephesians chapter 1. Would you turn there, please? Ephesians chapter 1. I often think about this concept when I open a new bottle or carton of orange juice, but really that's not the best illustration. How many of you have ever been to the DMV? Dumb question, isn't it? <laughs> Let's say you're standing in line at the DMV and you know how it is, you hope you have your right paperwork and you get it. and one of the things sometimes you have to have is you have to have certain documents that are the official document. Sometimes you have to have this for a birth, uh, with a birth certificate. And it's got to have, they'll hold it up to the lighter, they'll touch it with their hand. And what are they looking for? They're looking for the official seal, the raised part of the paper, to prove that it's the real document. It can't be just a copy. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, who's him? Him is the gift of Jesus, the baby in a manger who went to the cross. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed. You ought to underline or circle that word in your Bible. Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. It's as though... The Holy Spirit, at your salvation, when you receive by faith the free gift of the baby in a manger, the finished work of Christ on the cross, exchange your sin for his righteousness, you've been justified, you've been emancipated, he's substituted himself in for you. Um, you've been united to God through your salvation. You're no longer an enemy of God. Another thing that happens, and it's a once-for-all deal, is he seals the document. The Holy Spirit, one of His ministries, is to identify you with God in such a way, it's as though it's an official document sealed and you are kept for all of eternity. This is why we teach you cannot lose your salvation. That when you come to God in faith and receive this forgiveness of sin, just by faith, by believing it to be true and acknowledging your sinfulness before a holy God, and you know that Jesus alone paid the price for your sin and this faith is counted as righteousness for you, you are then sealed. The official document's there. That's your passport to heaven. That's your identification in the family of God. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. You got new paperwork when you got saved. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new is come. I mentioned a carton of orange juice and You know how you have to pop that little thing out of there? And I think about this doctrine often, and I think how that kind of a seal does what? That kind of a seal preserves, and it protects. Nobody has tampered with it. If the seal is broken, I know something's wrong. Listen, this is an unbreakable seal, and it protects, and it proves who you are, and it preserves you for the day of glory, and the ultimate day of our redemption an entrance to heaven. And so we're sealed. I'll tell you something. I really love my toolbox and I really like it that my dad built that for me and I hope my boys will take care of it someday and say, Grandpa built that for Daddy. Not much of a gift really, is it? A little piece of plywood. When you go to Bethlehem and you kneel before the manger... Now, there's a gift, my friend. There's a gift that justifies, declares you righteous in the presence and eyes and position of a holy God. That's incredible. That's incredible. There's a gift that emancipates and takes you out of the fields of the slavery of sin and brings you into the house and adopts you as His Son, who substitutes His place when you are on death row who unites you to a holy God so He becomes your heavenly Father instead of your enemy, and He seals it all through the Holy Spirit and guarantees it unto the day of redemption. Amen? I can't tell you a whole lot more about this than what I've just told you, because that's about as much as I understand it, and I really like it. And that's why it bothers me when I get bored with this kind of stuff, and why I think the church needs to not be bored with Jesus and distracted by trinkets and toys and earthly things. So maybe it's a day when believers in the Lord Christ would renew their love and their passion for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This baby in a manger who goes to the cross. This greatest and most amazing gift. And then how about you that is still in trouble? You really have a problem. You're lost in your sin and you need to come take this gift. Listen, this is how it works. Here's my buck knife. That would be a good Christmas present. Don't need one. Got a nice buck knife here. You're exchanging gifts. I don't know what your tradition is at your house. And you exchange gifts and you go, Oh, I got a knife. That's great. I love it. Let's see here. What do I have? Uh, maybe I... Here, yeah. I'm open my present. Let me give you a few dollars. You wouldn't do that around the Christmas tree, would you? It would be like, knock it off. This isn't like dollar store Wally Mart, this is our Christmas tree. You receive the gifts. So what do you do? You, you take it, you receive it, it becomes yours. You just accept it. And some of you got to tra- stop trying so hard to get to God. And you need to just bow your head and humble your heart and acknowledge the fact that God has found you this morning. And you just reach out and take that gift, that faith, and, believe. and pick your feet up off the floor, would you? Pick your feet up off the floor. Now that your weight's off your feet, you're relying on your chair entirely by what? By faith. I know this is a little bit difficult, and so you can put your feet down. <laughs> you put your faith in the chair. You're trusting in it. You're making, you're making a willful decision to allow that to carry the weight. And this is what you need to do. You need to take God at His word. That He loved you so much that He gave His only begotten Son on the very first Christmas. That whosoever, that's anybody in this room, believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. And by faith, just believe it to be true for you. Acknowledge your sinfulness and humble your heart in the presence of a holy God. And just say, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me at the cross. And just take the gift. Don't try to pay for it. Don't try to do anything for it. Just acknowledge it to be true for you and by faith, believe it. Ask God to strengthen you. Ask God to show you how to do that. It's between you and God. Let's bow our heads, please. As we close out, two things that I've referenced. One is that we believers in the Lord Christ who... I've heard these things over and over and over again to the degree that sometimes we'll sit down for a message and think, not again. Shame on us. Shame on us for somehow thinking that we ever deserve any of this and that we ever lose the marvel and the wonder that all of the trash and all of the garbage and all of the skeletons in the closets and all of the positional sin that we could do nothing about, not to speak of even all the choices of sin that compounds everything and the difficulties, that it's all gone and it's all on Christ, and that we would ever lose any of our passion and our love for Christ and reflecting upon these realities. Ask God to renew your heart this Christmas as you worship the baby in a manger. Give you back your, the love that you had at first, that we maybe have lost, that first love. And then, my friend, how about you that you need Christ today and you have the burden of the sin of, of your life Weighing upon your heart and weighing upon your mind. And you're guilty and you know all the dumb stuff you've done. The people you've hurt. And oh, to undo those decisions. They've even altered other people's lives in negative ways. And you can do nothing about it. What are you going to do when you stand before a holy God? And he looks at you and says, Why should I let you into my heaven? I want to tell you the only right answer is to say you shouldn't. Apart from the righteousness that you received from Christ that was exchanged at the cross. When you dumped your trash sin on Christ who knew no sin and he gave you the beautiful, pure righteousness of no sin that you didn't deserve. And it's yours. And you've been declared righteous. Right now could be your moment where God the judge puts down his gavel on the bench and declares you righteous. Just tell him in the privacy of your own mind, this is uh, is between you and God. He knows your heart and your mind. You can't trick him. God, I'm a sinner. And I believe this to be true for me, that what Jesus did was right and true. You enter into this salvation by faith, believing this to be true. So, Father, accomplish your purposes in us, soften hearts, open blind eyes, make the gospel make sense, help us to see the baby in a manger for what he is, the most amazing gift ever given, and thank you for these great truths upon which we've briefly reflected. Father, may this reality, the great gifts that we have in Christ, make everything else pale in comparison in our lives these days. Renew our love for you and our passion for the gospel. Father, save souls this morning for eternity, I pray. It's in Jesus' name.